Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with the man, the myth, the legend, the one and only Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am freezing my freshly manscaped balls off here in Minnesota. It is cold up here. I, I lived here for 20 years and, and as I reflect back, I'm thinking, why the hell didn't I get out of here sooner? <laughs> it's cold. Yeah. I, uh, I took my first trip to Minnesota last month and, uh, when I landed, it was six and the guys I was up there, you know, meeting with, they were like, oh, this is actually pretty pleasant because it's above zero. And I'm thinking, man, I'm so glad to be from Alabama right now. No, and I, like I said, I lived through this. You know, when I was a kid, I used to go out and play in this stuff. You know, when Mrs. B and I were first dating, when she was a mere 21 years old and I was a 27-year-old lech, we would go out, you know, in the, in January on a Friday night and party and dance and, you know, come out of the come out of the bar at 2 o'clock in the morning and chip the ice off your windshield and off your door handle so you could even get in your vehicle. I've been through it all. But this is just taking my breath away. This is like so freaking cold. My dog doesn't even want to go outside. That's cold. Speaking of taking your breath away, this this show we're covering this week took mine away. What a terrible show that we're talking about today. Super Brawl 5. I can't believe this is real. We're finally here February 19th at the Baltimore Arena. So I guess about a couple days from now will be the 25-year anniversary of this show. Um. Baltimore arena. I mean, that's so much nostalgia for wrestling and man, you guys just put up a turd of a show here, but I'm sure you disagree. What, what, a what a way to start out a show. Yeah. You know, as, as I endeavor to become a better person, become a better (laughs) broadcaster, become easier to, to listen to and easier to like by kind of muting or mitigating some of my stronger opinions about different parts of the peripheral wrestling industry and, and the people therein. you start off a show, by just like, just throwing a pile of shit up against the wall and just starting this thing off. So negatively, here's I don't know, here's Conrad. Here's, this here's, is not a good start to a show. I didn't think it was that bad of a show. No, it was not a stellar show. It was not one of you know. It was. It wasn't a work of art. It was something. Not something that I'm most proud of. As a matter of fact, it's a very forgettable show in many respects. But the worst show to characterize it as a turd. It is. I I find that offensive. Capital T, my man. Listen, I uh, (laughs) my my sleep my sleep schedule's thrown off. I went to uh, Europe with Jim Ross, which is an interesting story in and of itself someday. But I'm pretty excited about this. Cause I'm thinking, oh man, Hogan Vader, this should be pretty good. So I turn on the fucking thing and the first match is Paul Roma and Alex, Wright. 
And I can't wait to talk about that match, by the way. I talked about it a little bit last night. You know, I do the After 83 Weeks show with Christy Olsen and her gang uh, every Wednesday night. So we actually talked about that match during the show. So I'm, I, you know, I know we got a lot of ground to cover before that, but I'm anxious to break that match down and, and get your, you know, your insight and your perspective on that match, because I'm sure you and I have different opinions. So let's talk about Super Brawl. I'm ready to disagree, uh, but I, there's no de- debating this. He sold this motherfucker out. 13,390 fans can't squeeze another person in there. More than 10,000 paid at the time. An incredible house, 165,000 Baltimore was a WCW town. Was it not? It was indeed a lot of history there going way back to, you know, the NWA days. And, you know, WCW was just, uh, we were a fixture there. There were a couple times a year, did a lot of house shows there. We used to be, I don't know if it still is anymore. You know, I haven't been to Baltimore. I, I was there with WWE last year. And then obviously with StarCast. Uh, but I didn't get the sense that wrestling is as hot in Baltimore now as it, it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, it's hard to know, you know, exactly how hot it was back in the day. I just know it was a staple for the WWF for a long, long time. And then you guys sort of picked up the ball and ran with it and had quite a run as well. I mean, back in the day when WCW, you know, had, um, you know, pay-per-views every single month, it felt like, uh, at least one a year was in Baltimore. And we should mention, uh, in this era, WCW had like nine pay-per-views a year instead of 12. And this is actually the first pay-per-view of 1995. We're on the heels of Starcade 94. Definitely not one of the best Starcades in history. We've talked about it. A very forgettable main event with Hulk Hogan defeating the Butcher, also known as Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake. Uh, probably shouldn't have been the main event. It was right there in Nashville, Tennessee. But you did get something right at the end of Starcade. At the end of the show, Big Van Vader would storm into Hulk Hogan's dressing room, challenge him to a match, and now here we are seeing that dream match at Super Brawl 5. Um, there's been lots of rumor and innuendo behind the scenes for years that even though Vader was sort of the top heel when Hulk Hogan is first signed to the company, that Hogan had reservations about working with, with Vader. And we've sort of talked about that a little bit in passing in the past. You know, the, the rumor and innuendo is he didn't like Vader's style, but I think you think it was perhaps more of a trust issue. He had more faith and confidence in someone like Ric Flair, uh, to put on the type of match that he wanted to put on or do the type of business he wanted. What do you remember about, you know, the big delay here in putting together Hulk Hogan, your top baby face and big Van Vader, your top heel. Well, I mean, two things. Right off the bat, I don't think it necessarily was a delay. I mean, Hulk didn't come into WCW until what around July of of uh, ninety four. Right. Uh, his first match was with Ric Flair, who arguably, sh- absolutely, should have been you know his first match. Sure. And then what do we got? July, August, September, October, November, December, January. Seven months later, we've got Vader. Um, I don't think waiting that amount of time, look, other than Ric Flair, I think the Vader Hogan matchup was one of the more anticipated matchups at that time. Ric Flair and Kevin Sullivan, who were booking at the time, um, I think they did a pretty good job by 1994 standards, mind you, 
of building anticipation for this match. Certainly, it, it we all would have done a better job at it today. I think the storytelling and, and booking and writing and all that has, has advanced since 1994, just like play calling has advanced in the NFL. Uh, but, you know, they did a, an adequate job building up anticipation. That's part of it. Uh, was we didn't want to rush into it. The other part of it was, legitimately, Hogan had concerns about working with Vader. Um, the primary concern was that Vader's style, although he was uh, so capable, and after watching this match back, you know, it only reinforces that that feeling on, on my part. Vader was so capable of working with anybody in any style he wanted to, Unfortunately, he had, you know, he had a track record. He, he was a unpredictable personality. You never knew which Vader you were going to get, which is why Harley Race was his manager, by the way. Harley Race wasn't Vader's manager because Vader couldn't talk. Vader could, could cut a pretty good promo given the opportunity um, and a little bit of direction. But Harley Race was there to talk Vader off the cliff more often than not and try to manage him and get what we needed out of him, uh, creatively. So, you know, I think that Hulk was concerned about, you know, Vader's willingness, not ability, willingness to, to work a, uh, you know, a Hogan style match and tell a Hogan style story as opposed to the type of stories and the types of matches that Vader typically was involved in, where he basically ate everybody alive. So the, the, those were two issues. I'm not going to, you know, minimize the second, but I'm also not going to just, you know, gloss over the first. You know, there was no, there was no urgency in getting that match out there because we knew it would be a big match. We knew it would probably sell out. We knew it would be a draw on pay per view, and we wanted to build it correctly or as correctly as we could. It just feels, you know, if there is a criticism of the timing aspect of this, that perhaps rather than go back to the well at Halloween Havoc with a retirement match with all the gimmicks of a cage and, you know, Mr. T and all the shenanigans that happened to Halloween Havoc with Ric Flair, perhaps that could have been Vader, uh, your big Halloween Havoc event, uh, and live to fight another day. But tomato, tomato, we're finally getting the big match here. And speaking of Vader, Meltzer would write, Vader made a play last week to get his current contract, which has two years remaining, to be extended for another three years. Don't know details of that, but one could surmise the play was in exchange for putting Hogan over clean. Uh, oh, God. Yeah, I know you're going to jump uh. up, but let's talk about, do you remember Vader trying to make a play to get an extension here? I mean, certainly working with Hulk Hogan seems like a prime time to ask for a raise, right? No, no, no. You know, one, you know, a conspiracy theorist or, you know, anybody sitting in their room trying to conjure up a story with little bits and pieces of mostly uh, fiction in terms of information might conjure that story up and write that story and put it out there so that they sound like they have some inside information. But that that was not true. That was not true. There was no money. Was, Vader, and this has got nothing to do with me or WCW, but Vader didn't. Vader didn't make that play. He he just didn't. That, that was fiction out of the mind of one Dave Meltzer. Well, okay. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about you know, how we got here. 
95, big year for WCW. Starts off with Hogan Vader. Of course, in September, we're going to see the debut of Nitro, and thus begins the Monday Night War. As you roll into 1995, you know, you, you're on the heels of WCW's best year ever, for sure. I mean, you just blew the doors off at Bash at the Beach the prior year with Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. Set all kinds of records. Halloween Havoc, you know, certainly did big business. Now, as we're rolling into, you know, the next big thing with Hogan Vader, what were your, your plans and hopes and goals as we start 95? Did you already have Monday Nitro sort of circled? Was this already being discussed? Uh, we've talked about how it came together, but I don't know that we necessarily put together an exact timeline. What was the goal as you start 1995 where you thought, here's where we want to wind up come December 31st? But by 1995, my goal was to break even or make $1 a profit. That was that was what drove me. Nitro wasn't even a fantasy of mine. I mean, and we'll at some point, we'll probably get into more details about how that came about again. But it no, Nitro, if somebody would have said to me, you know, around this time in 1995, hey, I have a suspicion that maybe you're going to have a two or three hour primetime show on the TNT network every Monday night going head to head against Monday night raw, the number one WWE uh, platform. I, I would have laughed in their face. I, I, I would have walked away from them hoping that I didn't catch whatever disease they may have, you know, to, to come up with that kind of a, a fantasy, but no, Nitro was the farthest thing from my mind. My only goal, you know, is Bill Shaw. When he kind of gave me the reins of WCW, he said, look, you know, Ted loves this product. Ted loves WCW. Ted believes in professional wrestling and believes that it should be on the network. But he's only one guy. He's Ted Turner. But there is a board of directors. You know, there is an executive committee that has a lot of influence. And no one on that executive committee and no one on that board likes WCW. So if this company is going to stay viable, and this is the truth. I'm paraphrasing some of this. This is not word for word. But the message to me was clear. This company doesn't have to make a profit, but it does have to break even. And it can't embarrass by virtue of, you know, outside of the ring shenanigans with its talent. Um, it, it cannot embarrass the W or excuse me, the Turner broadcasting brand. So you, your job, you have two jobs. One, keep us out of the headlines in a negative way and two, break even. So that was my focus. That's why we, you know, you mentioned, you know, we increased pay-per-views, you know, we started out at four and then I think we did six and then it was eight and then it was nine. And eventually we got to 12 because that was the only, um, revenue stream that we had a hundred percent control over that had any kind of a profit margin in it. As I've said before so many times, and I know you know people probably get tired of hearing it, but if you, if you looked at the revenue model for a very successful wrestling company back in 1995, it, there was basically four legs to that table, right? If you think of just picture of a, a kitchen table, you know, the front left leg, you know, was live event ticket sales. You know, the the f front right leg um, was the pay-per-view business. Your rear right leg would have been, you know, television, advertising, sponsorship. 
And then over in the left corner, rear leg, is licensing and merchandising. Well, we didn't really share in the profits from advertising, and we didn't get a license fee at the time. We weren't being paid for our program, and we weren't getting full credit for the advertising. So one of those legs was gone. We didn't have it by, by virtue of the structure of WCW with internal broadcasting. I'll digress for a minute. Yes, it's true. There were a lot of advantages of being a part of Turner Broadcasting, WCW being a part of Turner Broadcasting. A lot of advantages. There were also a lot of disadvantages. And the fact that we didn't share in the advertising revenue directly, indirectly we did, but directly we didn't. And we weren't getting a license fee, you know, Try, try to try to apply that to any one of the – try to apply that to the AEW business model. Can you imagine AEW trying to survive if they didn't get a license fee? No. They wouldn't, right? That's what we had to do. So that was one example. We didn't have any licensing and merchandising because up until 1994, up until probably right about now, we had a hard time putting people in the seats. If you don't put them in the seats, you're not going to buy any merchandise. We certainly didn't have a retail um, licensing uh, a business established. We weren't hot enough. Nobody wanted our shit. We couldn't go out and get Mattel deals. We couldn't go out and get a lot of a, a lot of the great deals that WWE had at the time because our brand wasn't established in the minds of, you know, the the media market, the media buyers out there, the the toy companies. So we didn't have television advertising. Or a license fee. We didn't have licensing and merchandising. As I just said, our live our live event business was should have been. <laughs> they should have shut it down, you know, long before I did. I'm the one that shut down live events and took a lot of heat for it. By the way, you know, made a lot of enemies amongst the boys because I was literally taking money out of their pocket. Not because that was my goal to take money out of their pocket, but because live events was losing so much money. You know, we had to stop the bleeding, especially in 1995. So of the three legs of, of revenue that hold up the table called, you know, the wrestling business, um, only one of them had a pulse. And that was pay-per-views, which is why I kept increasing the number of pay-per-views because it was the only place we could make money. Let's talk about making money with Hulk Hogan. You, you roll the dice in a big way you know, six or eight months prior to this with Hulk Hogan at this point, do you think it's paying off for WCW the way you had originally hoped? I think at this point, you know, we were still in that honeymoon phase and there was so much, uh, measurable energy, you know, a little, you know, chatter in the media, you know, we're getting attention, you know, in the business to business side of things that we might not otherwise get. We were getting opportunities at the, you know, the, the toy fair, for example, got a, all of a sudden it became easier for us to kind of get some space, you know, uh, quality space at toy fair, for example, which is a big licensing expo for the games and toy business. Um, just on the business to business side, things were so much better. I think on the live event side, it was noticeable to me, even at this point, that while we were certainly getting a lot of great reaction and our house show numbers were up, it wasn't really to the extent that I guess I hoped it would be. 
So it was, this was the beginning of me, you know, realizing, and we talked, I think, last week or somewhere I talked about, you know, trying to get Hulk to turn heel a year before he did. Um, this is the point in time, you know, with Hogan where I started to go, yeah, that red and yellow thing, it's hot. It's hotter than we've had. This is better than what we've been doing, but it's not quite what we anticipated. Yeah, I think that's fair to assess. Uh, we should mention, speaking of Hulk, Meltzer would, repi- would uh, report, easy for me to say, Hulk Hogan and Jimmy Hart signed a record deal with Select Records on March 13th during the tour fair in New York. Hogan already has an album out in Germany. And for newer fans who may not know this, back in the 60s, Hart was a part of the band called The Gentries that had a few gold records, including two songs that still get significant play today on oldie stations, Keep On Dancing and Cinnamon Girl. Chat me up. What do you remember about a Hulk Hogan, Jimmy Hart record deal? This just sounds too good to be true. Yeah. You know, I never got too close to any of those deals. Um, first of all, music, the music business, especially back in 90, 94, it was very complex and crooked and difficult to understand, um, you know, because you had publishing rights and you had you had all these different rights that were all kind of commingled and tangled all together. So anytime you were trying to do business with somebody in the music business, you had to, you weren't just dealing with the artists or the artist representation. You were dealing with publishing companies and eh, it was just a pain in the ass. So I, I, I chose to stay away from it. I had no interest in the music business. So I never really got the details, you know, much information on these. Now, Jimmy, obviously having, you know, grown up in the music business and having had some success in the music business and loving it. You know, Jimmy loves music. Um, and Hulk, you know, before he was a wrestler, he was a bass player, you know, in a rock and roll band. So it was a natural for them. And I think the idea of going over to Germany, look, um, David Hasselhoff up until probably four years ago, five years ago was still selling out venues in Germany with his music. I mean, he was a hugely popular artist over there in Germany at the time. And I think if anything, Jimmy and, and Hulk might've been kind of looking at the David Hasselhoff model and thinking, well, Hasselhoff could do it. I could sure do it. Um, I don't know how well it worked. Don't ever know what became of the deal, but there was a lot of, a lot of interest on Hulk's part and especially driven by Jimmy. Cause Jimmy had a lot of, I wouldn't say he had influence over Hulk, but, um, yeah, he did. He had a lot of it because he spent so much time with Hulk and, and Hulk to this day. Trust Jimmy. You know, Jimmy's got Jimmy's got a very unique perspective and a, and a pretty unique personality. You know, the, those so many people see Jimmy out in public and you see that Jimmy Hart. But if you get the Jimmy Hart who's not on, who's not in character and have a really serious conversation about the business or or, or the presentation of the wrestling product, you'll be amazed at the perspective that you'll get from Jimmy Hart. You'll, you, and Conrad, I'm not sure you could get it. You would have to know Jimmy for a long time before he would, before you would see that, 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 that Jimmy Hart, that's not on. He's, he's on so much. He's it. He has to work at not being on. Right. But if you ever sit down and you get, you have that opportunity when there's, and 
nobody around because he doesn't like to share his opinion in front of a lot of people um, unless he really knows them well. But if you ever get a chance to, to pick Jimmy Hart's brain when he's not, you know, in the clown suit, by all means, take the opportunity because he's, he's got an amazing perspective. And, and Hulk trusted him and, 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 very, and, and for, for good reason. Super Brawl 5. Let's talk about it. But first, let's talk about how business has moved with the uh, addition of Hulk Hogan. Your average attendance in January of 94, 2,040 fans. A year later, with Hulk Hogan, 2,060 fans. Your average gate in January 94, 18,200 bucks. Your average gate in January 95, 18,000. Your average television rating in January of 94, 2.2. Your average television rating in January of 95, 2.1. So now most folks would see sort of where we are year over year and think, boy, Hulk really hasn't added anything, but you've told us, and, and this is sort of deep in the weeds and that's what we're good at here on the show. That really it was, there was more to it than just selling tickets. It was more to it than you know, television ratings. It was about how you could monetize the brand. And when those guys on, on, on Madison Avenue were reaching for their briefcase to make a pitch for WCW, having Hulk Hogan attached to WCW had significant value. It wouldn't always trickle down to ticket sales and things like that, right? No, right. And if even in the beginning of the show, you know, we were talking about, you asked me about, you know, Hogan's impact and was I happy with it or not happy with it? And in that answer, I referred to the business to business side of things. That means the non-consumer, non-viewer side of the business. So for example, you know, advertising, you know, potential sponsors, sponsors were always key because they weren't necessarily eating up real estate in a commercial type spot as much as they were, uh, in interstitial parts of the program, vignettes, you know, things that we had control over that we didn't have to share with uh, Turner Ad Sales. So sponsorship, you know, and, and the most obvious one obviously was Slim Jim and then Valvoline came along and others came along afterwards. But it was those initial relationships with sponsors and advertisers that were so difficult to manage. And while it is obvious <clears throat> and accurate to point out that Hogan's appearance didn't really move the needle in live events, although he didn't really participate in a lot of live events, so it's kind of misleading. But, you know, our live, abis- live event business was stale flat, wasn't growing, wasn't dying really. Um, television ratings were flat, not really growing, not really dying. A tenth of a point is you know a rounding error. So for the most part, ratings were flat. Uh, every other aspect of, of our business was flat, except for all of the things that goes on behind the scenes that nobody sees. Our ability to syndicate our program, which was still very, very, uh, a very important part of our business, all of a sudden started. Th- those imp- th- those opportunities were increasing exponentially. Um, advertising and sponsorship, as I as I've already mentioned, our ability to negotiate better deals with Directv uh, and our pay per view proprietor Dish. All of a sudden, now we had a little leverage in our conversations. And instead of being on a 60, 40 split with WCW being on the back end of 40, we were able to negotiate those percentages up. So while it is true in the peripheral wrestling media, many people may have pointed out the obvious, (laughs) which is pay-per-view numbers aren't growing. 
but the percentage of them that WCW received as a result of having Hulk Hogan did. So if all of a sudden we're picking up an extra 10% on a $3 million pay-per-view four times a year, guess what just happened? We've covered more than half of Hulk Hogan's contract for the entire year. So there were a lot of those types of behind-the-scenes activities and opportunities that were evolving and growing that WCW up until this point had never never had the opportunity to engage in. And, and that's why, you know, when people make, you know, especially early on when people were so critical of, you know, Hogan in particular and me as a result of bringing in Hulk Hogan and all of the, the narrative that was so obvious and uh, so thick at the time. But those people weren't seeing what was happening on, happening on the, the backside of the business that they were never exposed to. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your boy. And, of course, when we say your boy, we're talking about Honky Tonk Man. God damn it. Uh, January. What? Because people believe, because when you say that, people will believe it. People will think (laughs) that I have some kind of a relationship with this guy other than the one that we really have. Didn't he block you recently, by the way? Yes. Uh, So you recently shit on me, uh, or you recently shit on him, rather, here on the show. And people were loving that, where you said, hey, your perfect day would be, you know, wake up, stretch out, have a cup of coffee, walk the dog, fire the honky-tonk man, which I believe is a shirt now at ericbischoff.com. Well, I want to get it. <laughs> and you said that would be the best day ever. Uh, sort of like JBL says every day on Twitter when he either plays golf or eats Popeye's chicken. Either way, uh, he saw that because someone tagged him in it and he just immediately blocked me. And I think you might be blocked too. I'm not sure. Oh, my heart is broken. Oh, my God. Well, let's talk about Honky Tonk Man here. On January 8th, Arn Anderson would defeat Johnny B. Bad to win the world television title. Uh, Arn and I recently talked about the fact that all of his television title wins happened in the month of January, usually in the first 10 days or so, which is interesting to say the least, but you found you, you wound up firing the honky tonk man, not long before this. And we've talked about that a lot, but had the honky tonk man still been around, would he have won the title back from Johnny B bad here? Or were you done with honky tonk man? As soon as he got started. I don't believe he, and again, you know, Flair was booking at the time, um, either Flair or Sullivan. I can't remember. There was a transition there at some point. I just don't remember when it was. Um, but I just didn't look, I, there was a lot of stuff and we'll talk about it. You know, some of it was on the show that was just so dated and corny and, you know, just so late 1980s kind of hangover (laughs) content. Um, but I think Honky Tonk Man was like the most egregious form of that presentation. I mean, it, it was just so hokey and so corny, and it, which is saying a lot, you know, when you've got a cast of characters like we did back in '94, you know, or '95, and some of it, you know, from the Mummy to, I mean, there's too many goofy characters to really recount here. But I think of all of them, Honky Tonk Man was probably, like I said, the most egregious, just the most over the top and didn't fit. So I was I was done with him. I might, I might have given whoever was booking, if it was Flair or Sullivan, I might have given them a little more rope if they wanted to convince me that they had ideas for him that would actually work. But I had already made up my mind. 
interesting to uh always talk about the the honky tonk man whenever we can and and recently we we discussed here on the show that uh you on air joked that the honky tonk man couldn't take the heat and went back to school teaching and Meltzer sort of filled in the gaps in the observer and said that prior to going back to work for WCW he was a, a PE teacher which I don't know that I would have guessed was was Wayne Ferris's uh, occupation can you imagine being a tax paying parent in the city that that your 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 kid went to school and you went, you go to a parents teacher conference and you look at Wayne Ferris and you're told he's the PE teacher I mean, that's kind of like walking in, you know, meeting a math teacher that can't count, you know, or, or a science teacher that, you know, doesn't know how to break down a chemical analysis. I mean, for God's sake, Wayne Ferris, a high school PE teacher, uh, I'd want my money back. If I was paying taxes, school taxes, and that, and I, I walked into a parent-teacher conference, and that moron was was the teacher, I would demand my money back. I absolutely love this. Now, let's talk about another guy in the comings and goings of WCW. Randy Savage is going to debut in the ring for WCW against Avalanche on January sixth and seventh in Birmingham and Montgomery, Alabama, replacing Sting on top each time because he's uh, worn out from a long trip to Japan. Early days of Randy in WCW. Do you remember when he's coming in? Is there uh, anybody or anything in particular he wanted to work with? He winds up working with an old WWF, uh, you know, brother and the former Earthquake, now Avalanche. Is that just a natural fit for him when he comes in? You know, I think here's what I remember about Randy coming in. Randy wasn't so concerned about who he worked with, he just wanted to work. He was, he was on, Randy was on fire when he got to WCW. Keep in mind, and, you know, and, and I say this assuming, you know, people really knew what Randy was all about. Cause you know, most of us have been so exposed to Randy Savage and Randy Savage stories and behind the scenes videos and things like that. We feel like we know him really well. Even if, 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 if we've never met him, many people feel like they know him and, and in many ways they do because the Randy Savage that you saw on camera in so many respects was really the same guy that was, that was Randy Savage off camera. Now, when he was, when Randy was in his home, I mean, literally in, on his property, <laughs> um, and there weren't a lot of people around, he, you would see a different side of Randy. He was, he was a very mellow, chill guy, but you'd only see glimpses of that. And, and only if you were close enough to him to you know, be sitting with him in his house. But when Randy came to WCW, he was on fire. Keep in mind, he was told by Vince McMahon, uh, and I'm paraphrasing this. I wasn't there. I didn't hear the conversation. I'm, re- I'm, I'm, I'm referring to a conversation that I had with Randy and w- where Randy told me what Vince said. So I want to make that clear. Um, but according to Randy at the time, Vince made it clear to him that Randy's days in the ring were over, that they wanted to go younger, Vince meaning, you know, they meaning Vince, and that, you know, Randy should, you know, embrace a career as a color commentator. And for Randy, those who really know Randy, not just the, the way we think we do on camera, but for anybody that really knew Randy Savage, that lit a fire under him like none other. 
And all he wanted to do when he got to WCW was contribute and work. He was so not concerned with politics or creative. He just wanted to bust his balls and prove a point. Not just to me or to WCW or to Turner, but I think he wanted to prove a point to Vince McMahon. And if we'll, we'll talk about it in this match. It was a horrible matchup. The booking was horrible. Nobody really cared about the match. There was a lot of things about it that was just so ridiculously piss poor. But one of the things that wasn't piss poor was the effort that Randy put into this. And Sting, by the way, and everybody. It's, you know, it was it was bad booking. It wasn't bad effort. Um, but you watch Randy in this match. Go back and watch this particular pay per view, and you'll see a guy that is absolutely on fire and trying to prove a point. Let's talk about, uh, some not so great news. It's reported in the observer in this era that Van Hammer, whose real name is Mark Hildreth. He's 35 here was arrested on two counts of possession of illegally prescribed drugs. Hammer turned himself in a few weeks ago when he was arrested in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Uh, they took down the, uh, physician, Brian Dillingham, who wrote the prescriptions and there were no details in the observer about what drugs were involved. Um, but recently. Van Hammer made the news again, not great news this past month or so in Palm beach County, Florida, he was charged with a DUI and first degree felony hit and run. Allegedly he was driving at a rate of speed of 58 miles an hour in a 35 when he hit a five-year-old boy, uh, riding a bicycle and, uh, the kid flies onto Van Hammer's hood and suffered internal injuries. Ultimately the kid is going to survive. But I think even as we're recording now, uh, Van Hammer is still in jail, uh, with a $125,000 bond, uh, that would give him an option of house arrest, but he's still in jail. Now it's sad to see. You never want to see, I mean, what a horrific story of a kid being struck, but you never want to see one of the, uh, the guys in this wrestling family go through a tough time like this, but it feels like, uh, Van Hammer's had, a an interesting outside of the ring life experience. What can you tell us about Van Hammer and this arrest in this era or when he worked with you, or I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Well, uh, first of all, in terms of this, the, the arrest that you're referring to at this time in 1995, it was another one of those murky areas where, you know, a doctor's prescription, while I guess technically legal, uh, uh m- when you have doctors that are abusing, you know, their abilities to write prescriptions and making money on the side, there was so much abuse like this. And one look, I've said this before. I don't want to go off on too much of a rant here on steroids and drugs in, in, in the entertainment business, not just the wrestling business, the entertainment business. Uh, but so much of the damage that has been done to the sports entertainment industry, professional wrestling industry, as well as other forms of entertainment that all started with doctors writing bad prescriptions and abusing the system to, to line their pockets with cash and pharmaceutical companies, by the way, doing the same thing. You know, people often, you know, I I think I'd fairly look at the entertainment industry specifically sports entertainment, professional wrestling, and they immediately associate it with, you know, drug abuse or, you know, steroids and all that other kind of stuff. And predominantly the biggest issue was doctors writing bad scripts. That was the majority of the issue. Yes, steroids was a factor. Yes, steroids are bad. Performance enhancing drugs should be illegal, blah, 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 blah. But that wasn't the shit that was killing people. 
the stuff that was killing people was drugs. And now you look at a guy and, and back then, you know, in order for, I'm sorry, I'm too much of a tangent back then. Now, 94, 95 WCW is looking at an independent contractor, not an employee, an independent contractor who was busted for having drugs that his doctor legally prescribed him, prescribed him. So WCW wasn't in a position necessarily to take a hard, fast stop without possibly being sued by by talent because although they were charged, it was a legal prescription. Is WCW now going to be in the position, um, we're to go back to 1995, of evaluating the the, the a doctor's prescription? Are, are, we couldn't. We couldn't be in that position. And I'm not making excuses. I'm trying to describe the murky waters that existed when you have an independent contractor agreement with a talent who is not an employee, right? And that employee or that independent contractor is getting drugs, pharmaceuticals, from a doctor who is writing illicit scripts, how does WCW enforce that? Now, we can argue now after the fact and say, well, yeah, but the minute you're charged, you should be terminated. That's probably in hindsight would have been a good approach. But at the time, in, in, at this period of time in 1994, that wasn't as easy as, as to do as it was to say. Well, any comment or thoughts or Anything you want to say about the current situation of Van Hammer's in? I, I, I do. And I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to try to make this short. I apologize. But I've, I've mentioned my good friend, Tim Ryan, who I met uh, a couple of years ago. We actually produced a show um, with him for A&E. And uh, without going into Tim's story here, because that's not what this is about. Tim is a, he, he's an intervention counselor. T- Tim was a heroin addict. He was a hugely successful businessman, had offices in the Wrigley building, downtown Chicago, was making money hand over fist, uh, living the life, started out, you know, cocktails, Coke, you know, having a great time. And then it, it, it ended up with him, you know, becoming a heroin addict and, and doing, you know, five years in jail for almost killing a family under the influence in a car accident. And shortly after Tim got out of jail, his son died of a heroin overdose. So Tim's rock bottom, you know, literally was losing his son and he turned his life around and now he, he deals with people who have addiction. And through Tim, and, and listening to him and getting to know him and the things that he does, um, you, you, I have more empathy for addicts than I probably ever did because I wasn't, I was ignorant in a lot of ways. You look at somebody who's got a drug problem and it's easy to go, oh, you're just a bad person or you're a loser. Or, Why don't you try? You know, it's, it's very easy to cast judgment on people. We all do it. Um, I still do it. I try to catch myself, but, um, it's very easy when somebody does something like Mark did, you know, DUI hitting a kid, taking off, which is a chicken shit thing to do. Um, all of that, it's so easy to hate somebody like that or, or look down at them. But when somebody's has an addiction that has control over their lives, their judgment, everything about them, you know, until you walk in their shoes, try to have a little empathy. 
I hope he gets the help he needs. I'm grateful that I, I was down in Florida when this happened, by the way, I heard, I heard about it today. I, I, I was actually having lunch when I heard about it uh, while we were down in Florida, you know, thank God that the little boy was all right. Thank God that the little boy's father didn't put a bullet in Mark's head because that would have probably been the reaction of a lot of people I know, including probably myself, if that would have been something that had happened, you know, right in front of me in the moment. Um, thank God nothing bad happened. And I hope he gets the help he needs. It's it's a sad, you know, he's 60 years old, 55, whatever he is years old, to to be able to, ha- to, to have to struggle with that kind of an issue at that stage in your life. I feel really, really bad for him. And obviously, as you pointed out, this is a problem that he's had going back probably 25 or 30 years. Yeah, listen, we've had fun busted Van Hammer's balls um, on the show, but that's about, you know, creative stuff or his on-screen stuff or starcast nonsense none of that matters when it comes to real life stuff and i know a lot of people have had fun when he's been in a rough time sort of tagging us here on the show thinking we're going to kick him when he's down we're not doing that we hope that you know that that the little boy's okay and that that he pulls it together and 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 has a great success story because there are a ton of those in wrestling where guys you know were in a bad spot and pulled the nose up and, and we've talked about a lot of them here on the show you know uh, certainly not this type of situation, but Scott Hall has, has had had some struggles and he's pulled the nose up and certainly Sean Waltman and, and so many others who ha- are going to have a happy end to their story now. And I hope that that's the same for Van Hammer. Let's keep it going here on January 20th. You guys did an all nighter show on TBS. You also did one in 1994. Uh, it's from midnight to 6am and features a lot of older matches a lot of our uh, listeners here on the show have really got a kick out of these because some of these have resurfaced in recent years and uh, they love seeing Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan and guys like that in a more casual setting. Whose idea was this? How did they come together? What can you tell us about these? I think it was Sharon Sedello's and or Mike Weber's. It wasn't my idea. I don't think it came from TBS. It may have, and if it did, there would have been Jeff Carr, would have been the program director at TBS at the time, who would have brought it to us. But I'm, I wasn't really involved in it too much. But I, I my first re, my visceral reaction is Sharon Sadello and Andor Mike Weber, and it was kind of cool. It was fun. It was different. You know, and, and nothing to lose, easy to produce. The material was all there. And, I, you know, I, I, I liked it just because it was out of the box, something different. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Center Stage. Uh, Meltzer would report, there's some fear the fire department may close down Center Stage, which would mean they would need a new taping site. Of course, we know Center Stage is still up and running now. How critical of a of a of a building or how important of a building rather was center stage to WCW's history? Oh, I guess it's hard to quantify that, you know, for so long center stage, you know, people identified center. I think we were probably one of the only things that were really going on there for, for a while in Atlanta before they kind of rehabbed downtown Atlanta. But it was important from a financial perspective because it was a venue that we could set up in a, a ring in and reasonably fill. I don't know how many people center stage hold held. I'm guessing it was 450, 550, somewhere in there. Can't remember, but it was a small venue. But for those who remember watching WCW Saturday night there or the main event in some cases, 
um, it was a very uh, it was a very deep bowl. You know, so your ring was down on the floor, but the seats were uh, the, the rake, the angle of the seats from the floor up to the ceiling were very severe. So it looked like you had a wall of people around the ring. And th- the net effect of that is for the viewer at home, it looked like there were more people than typically you would see in an arena where, you know, the, the seating was raked at a, at a more gradual kind of a slope or angle. So it looked decent on television. Yeah. Uh, it looked decent for what it was on television. Um, so economically, it was it was important because for so long, WCW was losing so much money. Had WCW Saturday night had to go on the road and shoot like other shows did at the time, um, we would have been losing even more money. At least it was close. That's a, that's about the best thing I can say for it. You know, the downsides of it were obvious to me from the get-go. You know, the production values, you know, in a venue like that were just horrible. Um, backstage was worse. I mean, you had production people were shooting interviews backstage. You got 50, 60 people, you know, needing to, you know, in the locker room, needing to change clothes. And you've got this backstage area that, was really not built for that kind of traffic. So people were stacked on top of each other. The, the the rooms that we had to produce interviews in and that type of thing were just God awful. Um, there were so many things wrong with that venue, but surprisingly enough, you know, thanks to Keith Mitchell, Craig Leathers, Dan Bynum, um, a whole host of other people, the show that actually got on the air didn't look nearly as bad as it should, given the venue we were working in. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, a, a, a catchphrase in January, WCW is going to start calling themselves very briefly. The place where the stars are, who came up with these catchphrases. Eventually, you know, the one that I think is probably going to be most synonymous with WCW is where the big boys play, but you guys were sort of toying around with that. And it's certainly the right time to do it. You've got Ric Flair, you've got Hulk Hogan, you've got the macho man, you've got sting. You've got, you know, Bobby Heenan, you've got main gene where the stars are. Whose idea was that? Do you remember? Sharon Sadello's share. That was horrible. The big boys, uh, branding statement came out. We hired an outside, uh, marketing company to kind of come in and do an audit of our branding and our marketing and promotion just to give us ideas. And that's where, where the big boys play came from. And, you know, people make fun of it. They like it. They hate it, whatever. But I think it was a pretty good, it, it, it stuck, you know, and it, it worked. And it was a good, it was a good branding statement at the time uh, because people remembered it. And again, when you started bringing in guys like Hogan and Savage and Piper and all the others that we were bringing in, which were the biggest stars in the industry, it kind of fit and it worked. But yeah, where the stars are, Jesus Christ, paid somebody for that? The fuck? Thank you. Uh, it's noted in the Observer in this era that uh, many folks who work in WCW were saying Tony Schiavone was much easier to deal with once Jim Ross was rehired by Titan. Allegedly, uh, Schiavone was a little nervous because a lot of TBS folks, Jeff Carr in particular, were known for being big JR proponents. And Shivani may have felt a little, I don't know, insecure about his spot. But when he finally lands back with, with Titan, 
Shivani settles in and, and his coworkers say he's a little easier to deal with. Do you remember that being an issue that Shivani just wasn't uh, secure in his position until JR was rehired by Vince McMahon? Man, Conrad, I got to be really careful with this one because, you know, I'm close to both Tony and, and Jim. Um, and I don't want to say anything that upsets either one of them, but I also want to be honest to our listeners. So I'm going to do my best to walk this fine line, (laughs) but there was a lot of politics going on between the biggest personalities in WCW pre Watts Watts and post Watts and the politics in the relationship and the gamesmanship between Jim Ross, Dusty Rhodes, Tony, by virtue of the fact that he was caught in a crossfire, Tony was never, Tony was apolitical from the day I met him. He would make an effort to stay out of a political conversation. If people started talking about someone who wasn't in the room, whether it would be Jim Ross or Dusty or somebody else, um, unless it was Jim Hurd, because everybody kind of didn't like Jim Hurd, but for the most part, if you know a conversation started steering in the direction of putting heat on Dusty or Jim or or anybody really, Tony would leave the room, or he would change the conversation, or he would otherwise disengage. Tony didn't he didn't engage in that stuff. Everybody else did, and this is something that I observed as a C-string announcer because I was so nobody cared about me. I was such a non-threat that I was kind of like a potted plant in, or, or, or in a room. You know, everybody walked in, yeah, they see the plant there, but they just talk openly like it doesn't matter because I didn't matter in the big scheme of things. I, I wasn't part of the political, you know, uh, underpinning, you know, that was a, so much a mainstay in WCW at the time. But one of the things I did notice was that certain people were extremely cool, Jim Barnett being one of them, Gary Jester being another, you know, uh, and, and Jim Ross was a very political animal. I don't know if he talks about that. I haven't heard him talk about it, but he had to be. By the way, I'm not criticizing Jim for this because it was, it was political warfare in WCW. It was horrible. Um, so I can see why if people said those things, if, if that's true, if that reporting is true, I can see why. Because Tony was relieved. Tony was no longer under the pressure that he had been under under Jim. I worked for Jim Ross. It wasn't pleasant. You know, he wasn't unfair to me, by the way. He wasn't like he wasn't trying to screw me in any way, but he was not a pleasant person to work for. Um, not so? bad to hang, not bad to hang out with after work and have a cocktail and listen to old you know war stories. But working with him was tough. So I can understand why Tony was relieved and probably, you know, perceived to be easier to get along with as a result. Your perception of working for Jim at the time was he was, uh, difficult to work for because he had high expectations or he was rude to people or he was dismissive or, I mean, what, what do you mean when you say it was tough? I don't think it was high expectations. You know, that's something that I think everybody would expect. And certainly I did, 
you know, I wouldn't want to work some, for somebody that had low expectations. Um, so it wasn't that. It was, again, hearing the politics, you know, when there's somebody that you're working for and you, you're in their proximity and, and in the same room with them. And, you, you know, you, you're, you're watching, hearing, observing, you know, the gamesmanship. It puts pressure on you. You know, put, it put pressure on me. Let's put it that way. It put pressure on me uh, to kind of look beyond it, not engage with it. Don't let it cloud my my view of things. Don't let it affect me, because once it starts affecting you, then you become part of it. It's like it's like a disease. You know, and once you engage in it or you start letting it affect your outlook, you're now you're now as malignant as the people that were starting it, right? So uh, that part of it was uncomfortable. I think Jim's communication skills were, while probably effective during certain points of his career, weren't that effective in WCW with the people around him. Jim was a very emotional guy. And by the way, here's a little defense of Jim Ross. He was in an incredibly tough spot working for Bill Watts and under Jim Hurd. Um, it, it it was it was bad. So I think it was combination really of just the politics from a macro perspective regarding Jim and then his communication style and technique. Not because he was demanding. Let's talk about Paul White. Uh, Meltzer would report that Paul White built at seven two four forty came to a WCW show in Chicago. Apparently coming in to the company under the name Paul Bunyan and his training in Atlanta. Um, Elsewhere, right? Hogan wants a new Andre to be a permanent heel for him in both wrestling, whatever television vehicles he can muster up. Of course, we know uh, Paul White will go on to be the giant. We haven't really spent a, a ton of time talking about this, but the first time you laid eyes on this guy, you had to think, boy, this is fucking money. Did you not? Not really. No. Talk to me about that. Your first impressions of Paul White. Super nice guy amazingly talented, gifted, athletically. I love his personality, you know, especially when Paul first came in, you know, he was, he wasn't tainted. He wasn't cynical. He hadn't been worked over by everybody in the business. Um, he was just naive, not very intelligent. Don't, don't confuse the two, but so new to the wrestling business that he came in with his eyes wide open. And that's always a pleasure. You know, and it wasn't until afterwards after, you know, guys getting in his head, not unlike, you know, happened with Bill Goldberg, you know, get a guy with a ton of potential and everybody sees money in him, And of course, everybody wants to be his, you know, new best friend and closest personal advisor and tell him what he should or shouldn't do or how he should or shouldn't sell or who he should or shouldn't work with. And after about six months or a year of that, you just see that, you know, fresh face that came in with a great attitude and wide open enthusiasm, willing to learn and cut to 12 months later, you've got this, you know, crusty, cynical, kind of tough to communicate with individual. And it took a little longer than that to happen with Paul, but, um, I, I liked him a lot, but I just, you know, and I wasn't creative at that time. I wasn't in creative at that time. So I didn't think creatively. I wasn't thinking, okay, we're going to get this guy. Who we're going to work him with? Who, you know, I, I left that up to people like flair and dusty and Kevin Sullivan and others. Um, because I didn't have any confidence in my abilities in that area. So it wasn't 
my first thought wasn't a creative one because that wasn't my world at that time. My first thought was business. You know, business-wise, we were getting them at a really, really great price. Business-wise, it was worth taking a risk. Business-wise, there was no reason not to do a deal with Paul White because it wasn't costing me a lot of money at the time. So it was a good roll of the dice. But deep down inside, I just didn't see it. I didn't see who we'd work with. I didn't see how we'd make this guy, you know, a major star. And I think looking back, and certainly not being critical of Paul. I love Paul. He's a great, great guy. We've got a good history together. And I hope to see him, you know, down the road someday. All that being said, you know, although Paul has had a tremendous career in WWE, he's made a fortune in WWE, millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. Paul has now gone on uh, to, to get involved in the acting. And I think he's got a Netflix uh, series that's coming out or is out. So Paul's been very successful. But I don't think anybody can look at Paul White and say, wow, he was one of the greatest superstars in WWE. You, you're not going to put Paul White on the same pedestal as you're going to put a Ric Flair, Undertaker, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Rock, John Cena, or, and many, many others. He's just not. Um, that's not to say he wasn't valuable, not to say that he wasn't important, not to say that he shouldn't have been there. But when you say, is this guy going to be a superstar of all superstars? Is he going to be the Andre the Giant of WWE? I think the answer to that under WWE has been no. Let's uh, let's keep it moving here and let's talk about. You, do you disagree? No. No? So you agree? I said, okay, sure. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just fucking with you. Come on. No, listen. I mean, I think everybody thought that this that his career would wind up a little differently, but I don't know that that is necessarily an indictment on him as much as it is WWE. You know, I mean, um, certainly they're, you know, they made a big play and, and spent a lot of money and, and, and did whatever they needed to do to get him there. And he's had a long career and certainly... If you're looking at length of the career and amount of shows worked and tickets sold and things like that, bonafide hall of famer all the way across. But I do think that Vince in another era would have done more with him than he did in this era. I think well, I want to jump in there and let's talk about this just a little bit. I know this isn't you know relevant to, to this particular show, but that's my point. That's exactly, I mean, you and I are really saying the same thing. Yeah. We're just kind of approaching it from two different, you know, angles of attack, really. But in another era, yeah, in the 1950s or the 1960s, I would have been much more excited about it. In the 1970s, much more excited about it. But I didn't feel, even though I didn't really have a creative instinct, I guess I had an instinct, but I didn't have any creative cred at the time. In my mind, I just, how do you do it with this guy? How do you make this guy more important than a sting? How do you make this guy more important than Hulk Hogan? He's a young guy. He's not going to get that. You're not going to be able to inject 15 years of experience and charisma and the ability to read an audience and to be a, a major performer. You can't give him a pill for that. You can't inject it. You can't teach it. It just takes freaking time. And I, I, I just as big as he was – I, I just didn't believe in that era. And that's where I think you and I agree in that era that a guy like Paul White can work. We've talked about it before. How do you book that guy? How do you get sympathy on a guy that big? Right? How do you get heat on a guy that big? 
What do you do with a guy that big that's that allows you to tell a story other than use him as a special attraction occasionally? And that's my that's my point. We're saying the same thing. I'm I'm again, I'm not shitting on his career at all. I wish I'd made as much money in the wrestling business, you know, as Paul White did. I wish I made a third of as much money in the wrestling business as Paul White has, right? He's done a great job. He's consistent. He's done what's asked for him. Of him, but he's just not that Undertaker, Ric Flair, Stone Cold Steve Austin kind of guy. I couldn't do it, and and neither could WWE. Let's talk about the adjustment to pay per views here. Um, Meltzer's going to write: WCW has now taken the gamble of taking pay per view from a quarterly special mega card to something akin to a bi monthly special, to basically being the monthly major house show. With the decision to drop the June and November clash of the champion cards and replace them with pay-per-views. This will give WCW nine pay-per-views and two clashes in 95. The remaining one being in August with the distinct possibility of dropping clashes altogether after the next one, and then going to 10 or 11 pay-per-views in 1996. Between WCW's nine shows, the WWF's fives and UFC's four, that leaves 18 pay-per-view dates in 1995 as a bare minimum already on the schedule. Add to that a possibility of one or two AAA or UWFI shows and WCW producing its own competing UFC show that leaves the schedule with as many as 23 pay-per-view events, roughly one every two weeks. This isn't necessarily 23 competing events since many are more indirect than direct competition uh, with one another because they appeal to different audience bases, but there is a significant overlapping for audiences for all wrestling and or shoot combat with wrestling orientated pay-per-view shows. Obviously this is uh, a different era than what we're in now, but the decision to do more pay-per-views really feels like a no brainer to me. If you're going to go to all the trouble to do a live TBS special, I mean, you might as well put it on pay-per-view and drag some revenue in, right? Absolutely. We had no choice. It it wasn't like, well, should we do this? Should we not do this? It was driven by the economics of WCW and the mandate that we had to break even at the time. So there was not a lot of discussion. Didn't take a lot of convincing, you know, it was a lot of pushback, you know, people in general. I mean, I think this is human nature. Um, Nobody likes change. Everybody's afraid of change because if something bad happens, they don't want it to fall on their lap. Um, so anytime you introduce, you know, a new revenue model <clears throat> or a new way of executing a revenue model, you're going to get pushback. And sometimes you should, you know, sometimes you need to look at it and, and, and look at an idea or a strategy and try to find the holes and the flaws in it. And yeah, but this could happen or that could happen. And there was certainly some of that, you know, there was, there was a lot of chicken littles, you know, the sky is falling. If we do 12 pay-per-views a year, you know, we're, we're oh, none of our pay-per-views will matter and we won't generate any revenue. There was a lot of that uh, type of thinking, but we did it because we had no choice. It was a no-brainer, really, for us. Is part of that decision, you know, for it to be a no-brainer, is that because you're adding, you know, big line items like Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage? I mean, with with the new expanded payroll, you've got to offset it somewhere, right? Well, it was it, 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 no, not necessarily. It wasn't like, well, we're going to go hire all these people and try to figure out a way to make money with them. Th- those two decisions to increase pay per views and bring in top talent were kind of tandem. It was like, wait a minute, we've got to we've got to generate more revenue. You know, we're not. It's going to take a long time to generate licensing and merchandising again for those. 
you know, who haven't heard me talk about this before, that's a revenue stream that usually starts to manifest or you start to see the benefit from, I should say, uh, more clearly, um, probably three or four years after you get hot. Yeah, maybe in today's environment, it's a little quicker. Two years after you get hot, all of a sudden, you'll have people reaching out to you. If you started, if, if you started, if Conrad Thompson started a wrestling organization, you know, tomorrow and two years from now, that wrestling organization was in mainstream media. You'd see people talking about it on Sports Center. You know, there was tons of activity, tons of, you know, volume in terms of your television ratings or whatever and your pay per views. You would have people coming to you and saying, hey, you'd have EA Sports like WCW did come to you with a, with a $5 million check in, in their hand and say, hey, we would like to purchase the licensing rights to your product because we can see that you're hot and you've been hot consistently now for a couple of years. That's how long that takes. So the, you know, and the same thing with house shows. That took a long time to build up because, again, people, you know, I'll, I'll say it again, WCW spent years giving away tickets because nobody would pay for them when you condition your marketplace that everything you know when you come to their town whatever it is you have to offer you're going to give them for free very difficult for them and it takes a long time to recondition them to feel good about spending money on it right so we had all these you know, well, all of these. You had these four major revenue streams, and the only one that we had any control over was pay-per-view. So the thought was, let's bring in these big names, a la Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, and others, and let's increase our pay-per-views in order to monetize it. So I, I just want to make that distinction because the way I, at least the way I heard your question was, well, you brought all these guys in, now you got to figure out a way to make money with them. It wasn't like that. It was more of a, a strategy, more of a tandem strategy going into that acquisition of those acquisitions. Well, here's a strategy that I Fuck, know. I do talk too much, don't I? God damn. Uh, and without further ado, let's talk about one more piece of news, uh, maybe two, before we get into the Super Brawl. But this one really stuck out to me. Meltzer would say, WCW made its presence felt in a big way compared to the WWF at the Toy Fair. WCW spent a ton of money announcing its new toy line with full page color ads and every licensing journal doing what was described as a power Rangers level of advertising WWF in comparison, just advertised as an afterthought amongst the Hasbro displays. You guys had Hogan, Johnny B. Bad, Randy Savage, and Jimmy Hart representing WCW. Allegedly the nasty boys no showed. I think one of them claimed their foot was broken, which ended up not being the case. Meanwhile, the WWF sent Diesel and Bret Hart, and the big thing that uh, they're pushing is hero heads, like a styrofoam head of uh, Hulk Hogan and Sting. And WCW reps were claiming that, uh, unlike the WWF, the wrestlers in WCW were going to use their gimmicks in their matches. And the WCW reps were telling people who were attending, come over and meet real wrestlers as you know, a knock on the WWF. I think this is a, a bold move, Cotton. And I mean, for years and years, the WWF has sort of been the market leader here. And you guys had a big showing. And what a splash! Hulk Hogan and Macho Man. Am I right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Again, that was the intention. You know, the reason we brought Hulk in, the reason we brought Randy in, and amongst others, was to be able to do exactly what we did at that toy fair. 
and start generating interest in our product. That's the business to business side of the equation that, you know, people fail to perceive or understand or, or, or put a valuation on in terms of bringing those big names in. Did it, you know, did it absolutely turn the product around overnight? Nope. Did it absolutely give us the opportunity to turn the business to business side of our business around overnight? Yep. And this is one example of that. It's pretty remarkable, especially when you hear that, you know, there were tons of lines to get autographs from Hogan and Savage, minimal interest in diesel and Bret Hart. It does show you that from the mainstream perspective, you were making the right call. Uh, let's get to super brawl, but first let's mention that Rick and Scott Steiner were originally scheduled to debut on the March 19th pay-per-view and that was moved back to the June pay-per-view. And Meltzer would say the apparent reason for that is WCW wants to use them effectively since they'll probably come in at a high price tag and be in a tag team title program, which at this point would mean they'd be working with Harlem heat. When did you know you were getting the Steiners back and uh, how excited were you to uh, have an opportunity to work with them with your newfound position? Uh, I got a call from Rick and Rick let me know that uh, he and Scott were going to be available. I always had a good relationship with Rick. I never got close to Scott. Um, when, when they were both in WCW while I was there before they left for WWF, they left because of Bill Watts, which I certainly understood. So when Rick called me, uh, to explore the possibility of coming back, uh, I, I was really excited. I always enjoyed Rick always easy to talk to, easy to do business with great talent in the ring. Uh, just a good, solid guy to have in your locker room for sure. Um, like I said, Scott, I didn't know that well, but it was an easy, it was an easy negotiation. Nobody was asking for exorbitant amounts of money. I think Rick and Scott wanted to get back to Atlanta. That's where their families are from. I think Rick and Scott wanted to get back into a more familiar environment in WCW. And now that Bill Watts was gone and the regime that kind of was so, uh, oppressive to Scott and Rick, uh, were gone. Uh, they were anxious to get back and I was anxious to have them. That's awesome. Let's talk about the actual show. Uh, this show, as we said, uh, not my favorite show, but we're one month away from uncensored. So it could get worse. The dark matches here were Paul Orndorff from Brian Armstrong. They got three minutes and 45 seconds. This is all on the main event show. So it's not really a dark match. You're using this as sort of a countdown show to sell the pay-per-view. You're on the call here with dusty Rhodes. Talk us through the, the concept of doing live TV before the pay-per-view on main event. It's a live infomercial, bro. I mean, you have the ability to, you know, reach a huge audience. I think at the time, main event was probably, if WCW Saturday night was two point something million a week, main event was probably 1.3, 1.5 would be my guess. Uh, so you have, you know, 1.5 million viewers um, watching the show. If you do a great job, create some urgency, create some anticipation, uh, along with some great action, the opportunity to convert, you know, a million plus people to your pay-per-view, even if it's only, you know, a, a typical 3% conversion, you know, is a significant amount of money. So we were going to do it anyway. Why not do it live and use it as a platform to increase viewership for a pay-per-view? And you had more confidence in yourself to sell that pay-per-view than any of the other announcers. Is that why you're on the call? Uh, 
I mean, I was as, at least as good as everybody else, if not better in some respects, um, probably more vested at this point uh, than anybody else. And, you know, keep in mind, I've been doing color and play-by-play for uh, by this time, seven or eight years, you know, between ESPN and, and doing what I was doing, um, for WCW. So it wasn't like I just threw myself in there because I wanted to, I threw myself in there cause I was qualified. I was vested and, and probably, you know, if not the best, one of the best in that particular role, I wouldn't have been the best, you know, doing what Tony did on the pay-per-view. I certainly wouldn't have been as good as Bobby Heenan or Dusty Rhodes, or anybody else doing color commentary. But, you know, doing play-by-play and driving viewers to the pay-per-view on the Sunday night B-TBS show, uh, I was certainly qualified for that. Let's, uh, the match itself, we should mention, as we said, three minutes, 45 seconds. Orndorff gets the win over Brad Armstrong. But next up is the match where, well, there's a little bit of salesmanship. And we would see Vader pull up in a stretch limousine, a comically long limousine, and it looks like maybe Ric Flair's in the limo, but we don't know for sure. Vader's still in like t-shirt and sweatpants gear, but of course he's got the mask and gloves on. And he starts stomping around when he sees a second white limousine show up. Uh, but instead of Ric Flair being in there, as he punches out the window, it's Tony Schiavone who scurries away as if anybody's buying Tony Schiavone being in a fucking limousine, but still <laughs> he marches out to the ring. And, 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 and interrupts the tag match with Marcus Alexander Bagwell and the Patriot taking on Romeo Valentino and Dino Casanova. And he just destroys everyone makes a stop by the announce desk too. really gets over that Vader's gone crazy. And it's a great way for you to sell the main event. Nice little piece of business. Whose idea was that? Do you think? Mm, whoever was booking, you know, I'm, I'm going to say flair knowing that I could be corrected. And by this time it might've been Kevin Sullivan, uh, wasn't my idea, but it was a good idea and it was a great way to leverage the main event show. So I'm going to give, I'm going to give credit to Rick with an asterisk that it may have been Kevin Sullivan. And then we've got Arn Anderson retaining the TV title over Johnny B. Bad in a lumberjack match in four minutes and 29 seconds. Some time constraints, really not a great match. Let's get to the pay-per-view. Uh, the opening matches we teased at the top of the show is Alex Wright and Paul Roma. Alex Wright is the guy who's going to be uh, poised for the big push here. They get way too much time, in my opinion. 13 minutes, 21 seconds. Alex is not over yet at all with the fans. And, well, he's wrestling Paul Roma. Made a million-dollar look, but for whatever reason, was just not connecting with the fans either. It gets one star. Probably a bad spot to be in. Maybe not the best match to start with. And this feud actually got started, if you can call it that, on the January 28th episode of WCW Saturday Night when Roma would confront Wright uh, out of jealousy because Alex Wright is too popular with the female fans. Um, just a fucking mess for me. What say you? Yeah, before I... Before I respond to that, I want to back up just a little bit. If you go, if you go back and watch the show on the WWE Network, which I encourage you to do, because there's there as bad as the show was, and I'm gonna, you know, I'll submit to you that yes, this was a a bad show, but maybe not as bad as you make it out to be from my point of view. But whatever, we'll we'll talk through it. But of the highlights in this show and things that I think people, whether you're in the whether you've been in the industry for ten years or you're hoping to break in next month, go back and watch these shows because you're going to see masters of the craft in certain 
in, in certain points of, of all of these shows. You're going to find some really, really good stuff along with the bad stuff. And I, I've said it before, but it's worth pointing out again. <clears throat> announcers are so vital to the product. Good announcing, good storytelling, enhancing the visual and the obvious by stimulating the imagination and taking the viewer beyond what they just see and making them feel and think differently about it is an art form unto itself. And there are very few people that really master that that ability. You know, Jim Ross being one, Tony Schiavone being another, quite frankly. Quite frankly, that's another thing I say too often. Quite frankly, nonetheless, true. Um, but if you go back and watch Bobby and Gene together, now the magic, if you just watch it, if you don't know what you don't know, and you just watch it and you you take it for face value, it's good. It's entertaining. It's typical Bobby, you know, Gene type stuff. But if you were backstage, if you knew what you don't know, and you realize that these guys didn't rehearse, they didn't plan, they didn't have a setup, they didn't have, you know, as I see, and I'm not being critical, but I've seen this so many times, and I've been part of it. You know, you say this, and then I'm going to come in with this line, or set me up for this one-liner, right? It's like stand-up comedy, right? You need a straight man. And these guys didn't do that. They knew each other so well. They each knew the story so well. They each knew their respective jobs within the challenge of presenting that story so well. These guys were like they were they were like the gears on a Rolex. They would just fit together so well, and they could almost you know complete each other's sentences. So go back and watch the opening here, just because they did such a fantastic job of setting up the story painting the picture, building anticipation, but doing it in a very entertaining way where they were getting the product over and not getting themselves over. That's all I'm going to say about that. As far as a match goes, here's, here's, and again, I watch this differently now than I would have, you know, if I'd never been in the wrestling business or whatever. But again, I'm a huge Alex Wright fan. This kid's 19 years old at this point. In his career, he's never wrestled on TV, I don't think, at this point in his career. He's in the ring with some of the biggest names in the industry, maybe not wrestling them, but on the same cards with them. He's, you know, Hulk Hogan is on this card. Randy Savage is on this card. This is a lot of pressure on a kid. Like, Oh, and by the way, he's not from here. Uh, he's he's from Germany. And he's, he's 19. He's 19, for God's sake. I have shoes older than 19 years old. And... You look at what he's doing in the ring, and I just think he was so talented. Now, here's where here's where the wheels came off a little bit. Look at if you're going to go back and watch this. Look specifically at the way that Alex Wright is selling. He oversells. He sells dead. He 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 sells so much it looks like you're just beating a you're kicking a puppy. You know that's the kind of selling that he had. That's not very inspiring. Number one, now it's hard to get an audience behind you when you when you sell to that extent. And selling is an art unto its own. And I don't claim to be a master of it, other than I can tell when I really like it and I can tell when I really don't. This was selling that I really didn't like because it was just selling dead to me. That's my interpretation of selling dead. When it looks like you, there's absolutely no way you're going to make a comeback. As opposed to 
selling in a way where you're registering, you're putting over your opponent, you're giving them what you need to give them so that they can get heat. But as a viewer, as a fan, as someone in the first row or in a 151st row, you, you're still that hope that something good could happen. You might turn this around. Just give me a little bit. And it doesn't, it can be a look, it can be a gesture. It can be so many little things that don't take away from the heat, but still give you at least a heartbeat within the story of what we're seeing at that moment, as opposed to flatlining. And there was a lot of flatlining in in Alex's selling here. On the flip side of that, Roman didn't sell a fucking thing for this kid. You know, you're watching this match. There's a couple of times where, you know, Alex is attempting to make a comeback in the center of the ring and he's firing big right hands and left hands into Roma. And first of all, Alex is bigger than Roma, so he should have been okay with selling for him a little bit, but would have, it would have gotten Roma more heat. But instead, Alex is chopping wood in the middle of the ring, throwing rights and lefts, you know, to, to, to Roma's midsection and Roma's absolutely no selling him which did no good for Roma and absolutely, well, it exacerbated the, you know, the dead cell that we were seeing from Alex Wright, which took Alex down even three or four more notches. Then when Alex finally does, he finally does make a comeback and Roma actually sells it a little bit. What does Alex do? He gets up and dances. That's heat. Now you got this young kid who's been selling dead for, I don't know how long this match was, 12 or 14 minutes. He's been selling dead. If it was a 12-minute match, he was selling dead for 11 minutes and 30 seconds. And when he did make a little bit of a comeback, the, the heel that he was in the ring w- with no-sold the baby face. And then when the baby face finally gets a, a, sp- a, a spot to shine a little bit and make his comeback, he breaks out in a disco dance. So it was no wonder by the time you, you, know, you get to the end of this match and, you know, watch it, um, you know, the crowd pops for Roma, which is, here's an example of really, re- this is an example of how you don't want to lay out a match. This is an example of what happens when there's no clear heel and there's no clear baby face. This is what happens if you put a guy in a ring who's got quite a bit of experience, who is going to quote unquote, eat up a young talent by not selling form. And at the end of it all, you're taking away from the audience. You're taking away from the overall product. There, done with that one. Go ahead. Next. Well, I wanted to ask a follow-up though on this one. Um, the rumor and innuendo is that this spot is blown at the end. Uh, Roma and Orndorff are talking. Alex Wright drop kicks Roma and Orndorff. The spot looks bad because it's developing kind of slowly. Then he schoolboys him for the pin. And allegedly the rumor is Roma was fired because he kicked out of the pin attempt at two and a half. At least that was the rumor in innuendo for years online. Do you remember if, if this finish had anything to do with Roma parting ways with the company? I don't. Okay. I don't. It could be true. I'm not going to say it wasn't. I'm not going to say it was. I, it doesn't register in my memory. Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about, uh, the next match, which is a real barn burner. It gets a negative half a star in the observer and they get 12 minutes for Jim Duggan and bunkhouse buck. Very clumsy. is what Meltzer says. Duggan is so slow. It makes everything he does look bad. Uh, yeah, not the best thing we've ever seen. what do you think? 
I think if you go to 38 minutes and 33 seconds, you're going to see one of the best standing sidekicks delivered in a professional wrestling ring in the last 20 years by Ming. That's what I think. Like I said, there's a bright spot to everything. And as much as I agree with your take on everything that happened up until 38 minutes and 53 seconds, um, at least there was a hell of a kick. And again, if you're breaking into business and you're going to throw a kick, go back, tee it up, 38 minutes, 33 seconds, Super Bowl five. Ming delivers a kick after the match is over that just looks like it killed. I mean, I can't remember who he hit. Duggan, I guess. Just unbelievably good kick. Bright spot everywhere. Just got to look for him. Colonel Robert Parker is accompanying Bunkhouse Buck to the ring. And of course, Ming is their heavy. And uh, after the match, Ming kicks Duggan in the head, throws him in the nerve hold. And that's when Hannon would call him the most dangerous man walking the face of the earth. So that's the kick that uh, Eric is referencing. Next up, a battle of storyline brothers, Kevin Sullivan versus Dave Sullivan. Of course, Kevin is upset because Dave is now uh, an over-the-top Hulk Hogan fan. And now we have a match. This is real. I guess we should mention this has been coming for a long time. Uh, Mr. T was once a part of this and they've gone back and forth and it's all over his love of Hulk Hogan. They go seven minutes, 18 seconds. Of course, the butcher is with Kevin Sullivan here. Everybody hates Hulk Hogan. Negative two stars, seven minutes and 18 seconds. Um, Dave Sullivan, not a great worker here. This is just, uh, I mean, I understand the storyline, but this feels like Saturday night, but yeah, it's on pay-per-view. Kevin gets the win. Thankfully. What'd you think? I was horrified. I just, this is so bad. And again, even, even me, you know, I'm, I'm looking for the bright spot, right? I'm, I'm, I say to myself, yeah, but this was 1995. This is early 95 really was the tail end of 94. And I'm, I'm trying to think of all these reasons why or how I could mitigate the way I felt about this match. But I can't. It's just horrible. And there's a lot of things that Kevin Sullivan, you know, it's funny. Kevin Nash and I were talking the other day, and he called me, had a couple questions about something non related to this. And we were just shooting the shit, right? And Kevin's name came up. And we, we spent about 20 minutes talking about Kevin Sullivan and Kevin Sullivan's stories. And there was a lot of really crazy, stupid, off-the-wall shit that Kevin did that just made you scratch your head. And now looking back on it, makes you scratch your head even harder. But there was a lot of really good stuff that Kevin did. A lot of it. Sometimes more than... I guess even I give him credit for because, you know, the, the timing and the, the details of how things happen get murky after a couple decades. But this wasn't one of his better pieces of work. I love you, Kevin. Hopefully you feel the same way if you're listening to this. But, yeah, this, this is not going to go on a Kevin Sullivan highlight reel, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it will either. Uh, next up, we've got, uh, the tag title match between Harlem heat and the nasty boys. I'm a big fan of the nasty boys. We saw promos from both ahead of time. These promos, almost all the promos in the show are comically over the top bad. It might be the worst pay-per-view ever for promos. Um, everyone's yelling and, and, and the nasty boys in particular, 
there's lots of movement. It looks like they've just had, you know, 18 cups of coffee. Like you talk about, you do every day and they're just bouncing around and energy for no reason. Of course they won't show that in the match, but they do in the promos because that's what you're supposed to do, brother. And they're yelling and the match just sort of is what it is. It's a dusty screw job. According to Dave Meltzer, 17 minutes and seven seconds. Again, I think it's too long, but the match itself is good. I like both of these guys work two stars and Harlem heat wind up retaining what did you think of the match and, and what did you think about, uh, the way it all came together? As much as I like, um, Harlem heat nasty boys matches. I'm like you, I guess there's not, I've never seen a really bad one. It's just varying degrees of good or great, you know, cause they did work together really well. They worked hard together. They beat the hell out of each other. Everything was stiff. I mean, it was, there was nothing you could really pick apart too much in their matches. Again, it was just varying degrees of good, you know, and sometimes great, but there was, you know, there was a sameness to them too. You know, we've seen so many of them now, especially looking back the way we do, you know, you see so many of them, you know, in a particular given period of time that, um, the only thing that really changed up was the intensity and everything else was pretty much the same. And that's how I felt about this. It, w- it wasn't great. It was good. It was better than good. Not quite great, but very typical of, of Harlem heat and, and nasty boys. I agree with you on the promo though, even Sherry. And I used to love Sherry's promos. I thought Sherry's promo and this was a little too hot. It, it happened earlier on after the, uh, the Alex, uh, Roma match, but it, you know, there's that fine line when you're cutting a promo for me, at least in terms of what I like to do and what I like to hear, um, where you, you, you push it too hard, you know, and people feel the need, especially back in the nineties, everybody felt the need to yell at the camera brother and point at the camera and I'll tell you what. Let me tell you something, you know, those same phrases that you'd hear everybody do over and over and over again, <clears throat> excuse me, I almost blew my throat up. And then when they're using those same phrases to be using them, like they're yelling at the camera, really, really ineffective, really ineffective. And everybody did it. So a little disappointed in that promo because typically Sherry was better than that. But yeah, everybody seemed to be pretty jazzed up. Must've been some Starbucks in the dressing room. Yeah. We should have mentioned, uh, Sherry is here with Harlem heat. And of course the nasty boys are familiar with Sherry. And they say, if she gets in the way, you know, we're going to knock the smile off her ugly stinking face, blah, blah, blah. Um, and we should mention Sherry comes off the top rope, hits knobs with her shoe, but he moves and, uh, Stevie Ray gets hit and then he's pinned. So it looks like the nasty boys have won, but then after the match, Randy Anderson comes to ringside and tells Nick Patrick about the over the top rope moment. Yes. This is still the era where if you get thrown over the top rope, it's a DQ. So Patrick reverses the decision. So no title changes hands. And next up, man, another match that for me is just too long. Blacktop bully is going to come to the ring. He's got Colonel Robert Parker with him. He's also got Ming with him. And as he gets to ringside, Nick Bockwinkle stops him and announces that he's banning Ming from ringside. To my surprise, that announcement actually gets a pop. And uh, then out comes Dustin Rhodes. There's no denying Dustin here is the son of Dusty Rhodes. Of course, uh, Blacktop Bully is Barry Dorso, the former Demolition Smash, the former Repo Man, the former Crusher Khrushchev. Star and a quarter as Blacktop gets the win. 
in 16 minutes and 10 seconds, just too freaking long for me, man. What'd you think? Yeah, it was way too long. I think neither one of these guys, Dustin or, or blocked up had the Barry Darso had, this was not the best match of either of their careers. Right. This is not, I guarantee you, this is not on their personal highlight reels or matches that they talk about to their friends <laughs> when they reflect back on the highlights of their career. It was, uh, it was too long of a match that was laid out in such a way that it was not very exciting. And I've seen Dustin Rhodes when he's been on his game and I've seen him when he's not. And this is one of those cases where he was not. Just and, and it could have been the chemistry with him and Barry, you know, their ring styles. I love Barry. Barry Barry went to high school with my wife. I've known Barry for a long time. I know Barry's son. Barry's son and Garrett, my son, are good friends. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the world of Barry. But uh, this was not, as I do Dustin, but this was not a great match for either one of them. Next up, we've got Sting and Randy Savage taking on Avalanche and Big Bubba Rogers. Of course, Avalanche is the former Earthquake. Big Bubba Rogers is the former guardian angel who is the former boss, who is the former big boss man. Um, this has been a long time coming. I guess we started this at Starcade 94 when Sting defeated Avalanche by DQ. Um, prior to this though, they do a really uh, another weird promo where you've got Sting in the back with Mean Gene Okerlund and you've also got uh, the Macho Man. The Macho Man is frantically pacing back and forth and he just keeps saying, I'm not talking and Sting is in the best shape of his life. I think here, uh, and he is tan, which I know you really enjoyed, but I love that. I love when I saw this, I went, wow, that mucker father has a tan, <laughs> but macho man just over and over. I'm not talking. It became a very awkward promo and macho man's normally one of the best promos around. Uh, but that was not the case here. Certainly a, a matter of styles clash. Sting and Savage get the win, of course, over Avalanche and Big Bubba. They go 10 minutes and 18 seconds. It is a pretty decent match. I think it's probably the best match on the show. Meltzer agreed, I think. He gave it three stars. And I don't know that I would have guessed that originally. But we should also mention that before the match actually happens, Ric Flair comes out. He cuts a hell of a promo. Remember, he's recently retired. He lost a, you know, loser must retire match or whatever. He put his career on the line at Halloween Havoc. Um, and so he's announcing that he's here just to take you in the sights and, you know, see the, uh, where the big boys play and he's going to sit ringside because he's not competing tonight, of course, because he's retired, but he's got five of the world's most beautiful women sitting right by his side. We follow him to a seat. And of course he's sitting with four empty seats. Um, Flair pulls a security guard in front of him when Savage wants to go after him. So at least we're, we're teasing that there might be something here. Of course, when it's all said and done, Sting comes off the top with a crossbody on Avalanche. They trip backwards over the prone Bubba and they're pinned. So our, our baby faces get the win. Better match than I expected, but I don't know what I was expecting. What did you think? I liked it. You know, and again, I was reflecting back. You know, this was Randy, you know, early on in WCW, and he had such a great attitude. He was trying so hard, as we said in the beginning of the show, to make a point, you know, not necessarily to me or to WCW or even the WCW fans, but I think to Vince McMahon himself and, and to Randy. I think Randy was trying to prove to himself that he still had the ability to get in the rank because it was so important. It was his life. 
you know, and he, he had that, you know, uh, potentially at least or temporarily taken away from him. And he wasn't ready for that. I understand that drive. I understand that feeling that people have in, in any walk of life, um, not just as a performer. But, you know, watching Randy in this match <clears throat> just reminded me of the energy and the commitment and the determination that he brought. It was fun to be around. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, the next match, which is our main event. But before we do, we need to talk a little bit about the new year. And now let's talk about our main event, Hulk Hogan, big van Vader, long time coming, man. We've had it built since Starcade. Um, this is going to be an interesting match, I guess, probably too long. Uh, it's a DQ. So I wish that wasn't the case. That's the only thing I don't really like about it. Meltzer gave it three and a quarter stars. Probably would have been better. Uh, had it been a clean finish, Hogan gets the win by DQ. Of course, so he retains, they get plenty of time, 15 minutes and 10 seconds. Hogan uses the three punches in the clothesline to get started, but Vader doesn't sell it. And he comes back pounding on Hogan in the corner. It's really, really good stuff. And of course they can't help, but get flair involved since he's sitting front row flair eventually attacks Hogan and basically gets destroyed by Hogan, but the ref calls for the DQ. Uh, but then the double team comes down. We get him the get Hogan down in the figure four. Vader's climbing on the top rope, and before he could jump, Sting and Savage make the save. Three and a quarter stars. Pretty interesting, but Meltzer would say supposedly the finish was originally a double juice with Nick Bockwinkel or the commission stopping the match, set up a uh you know, a uh a, an uncensored match as a result of that. But the circumstances of, uh, what happened the prior week with there there being a Phil Mushnick column. And apparently Meltzer even says, I can't figure out what one has to do with the other. The company nixes the idea of doing blood. I know, you know, you're probably going to poke holes in the Phil Mushnick piece. What can you tell us about the original or the talk that there was a, an original finish planned of blood. And then we moved away from that. I don't know if there was, or there wasn't, but to suggest <clears throat> once again, fictionalizing a report by quoting, you know, unnamed sources or you know, references that you can't identify that there was an original finish that got changed because of a, a newspaper article or completely false. This was a pay-per-view. We, yes, you know, blood on television was an up and down issue. It was a political hot potato depending on the moment, you know, WWF at the time, Vince McMahon, WWE now, uh, were, they, they, they had a PR campaign and were writing letters to executives of Turner broadcasting on a regular basis. Anytime there would be blood on television and we would cut back and then they would do it. So it was like this back and forth, you know, about blood on television was not the case on pay-per-view, you know, pay-per-view was a little different animal. And we would, you know, allow ourselves to have more discretion in using blood on pay-per-view, not on television, but on pay-per-view. So to suggest that whatever change, and there may have been a change, I don't know. I doubt that Dave Meltzer would have known about it. Uh, And there may have been discussions about different finishes. But to suggest that the finish that we saw was a direct result of a newspaper article is taking a lot of creative liberty. The, uh, the match itself, what'd you think? You watched it this time for the first time in gosh, what? 25 years. <laughs> no wonder my back is sore. Um, here's what I thought, you know, a couple things that I, that, that I was 
pleasantly surprised with. You know, by two hours, 30 minutes in now, we got about 14 minutes left in the show, I think. Um, a lot of great selling by Vader. And we've talked often, not only on this particular episode at the beginning of it, but on other episodes about, you know, Hogan's concern about having the kind of match with Vader that Hogan believed was the right kind of match for his character. Um, I think by, you know, two hours and 30 minutes into this match, all doubt about Vader's ability to do that was gone. He was doing a phenomenal job of selling the way he should have sold for Hulk Hogan, meaning unlike Alex Wright, who was selling dead, you know, you knew Vader was going to come back. You knew, you know, there's going to be a receipt here. Um, but in the meantime, Vader was making Hogan look really, really good as a heel should when he's in there with a baby face, unlike the Roma right scenario that we saw at the beginning of the show. So that was my first reaction. Uh, and I think this typifies or exemplifies, I think would probably be a better way to say it, Vader's real skills. Because, yeah, he, he was a great big man. Yeah, he could go over to Japan. He could stand up against, to stand up and, 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 and then some against some of the toughest opponents in Japan where that tough shoot style, stiff, type of wrestling is so predominant. It certainly was back then. Uh, but here you see a guy who is completely adapting to a different style, doing what he should do for his opponent and for the audience, by the way, not just for his opponent, but for the audience to bring them into the emotion of this match. I would say, in my opinion, from a technical perspective, a selling perspective, this might might have been one of Vader's best efforts in that respect, just focusing on selling. The other thing that I noticed, and this is something, again, if you've been in this business longer than me, if you've been in this business for over 30 years, if you've been in this business for 30 days, if you hope to get into this business a month from now or 10 years from now, go back, pull this show up, wwenetwork.com, Super Brawl 5, Go to two hours and 36 minutes where you see a choke slam being referred to by Tony Schiavone as a throat pickup. That's right. A throat pickup. Now, maybe this is before choke slams became it is. common. It is. But when I heard Tony refer to a choke slam as and coming off the uh, Irish whip off the ropes, and a throat pickup. <laughs> what the fuck? I throw, that's like full arm drag in a twist. That's another one of those people, and they still do it to this day, right? Full arm drag in a twist. First of all, it's not an arm drag. It's not even close to an arm drag. It, 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 but it's got this full arm drag in a twist. By the way, anyway, you're talking about choke slams. The the little highlight reel, the the video package that plays to build this match, shows Vader choke slam Sting. God damn, Sting gave him everything in that. He made him look like a murderer. When you watch this back, if you watch this show back, you've got to go see this choke slam for Vader on Sting. Sting just goes all out for him, makes him look unbelievable, and he certainly was in this era. I mean, he was the uh, the top dog. And by the way, fans bought it. I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised with this, Eric, uh, the wrestling observer reader poll for the best match Hogan and Vader won. And it wasn't close. 
why you would think I care what the Wrestling Observer Reader poll suggests is, confuses me at this point in our you know podcast career together. Well, but because, whatever. Because here's why: they have historically been very, very hard on your old pal Hulk Hogan, and the idea that he had the best match. That's a little unique. And I thought you'd be intrigued by that, but you know, fuck me for having an opinion. The worst match, of course, Runaway, <laughs> Kevin Sullivan versus Dave Sullivan. Uh, the overall consensus of the show 11.2% thumbs up, 75.9% thumbs down, 12.9% thumbs in the middle. I give it a thumbs down as well. What say you? I'm going to go thumbs in the middle. And before we cut this off, one other high spot in this match for all the Hogan haters out there at two hours, 39 minutes, Vader kicks out of Hogan's finish. So there you go. Um, as, as hard as, uh, Vader worked to make Hogan look good. Hogan did the same thing for Vader, which is one of the reasons why this match wasn't nearly as bad, I think, as some people would like to have assumed it would be. But I, I gave it a thumbs up. Look, there was enough bad stuff on this thing. You know, the Dave Sullivan, Dave Sullivan, Kelvin, Kevin Sullivan stuff was pretty horrific. You know, we, we talked about a blacktop bully and, and Dustin Rhodes was, you know, not even, you know, TBS Saturday night worthy, to be fair and honest about it. Um, yeah. Ah, thumbs in the middle. I, did, I I wasn't that horrified by it. Yeah, I don't. I don't hate it. You know, in hindsight, I was probably a little harder at the beginning of the show. I just wish the finish was a little cleaner. I'll be honest. I would have liked to have seen Vader win the world title here, and then let's have a rematch because we know we got screwed. And this time, let's do a strap match, and that's what we're going to get in uncensored. But instead, we do a DQ. Was there any consideration to having Vader go over and then having Hogan fight to get the belt back? I mean, that's historically what does the best business in wrestling, right? The baby face chasing. Yeah. The baby face chasing. But I think the consensus was, uh, that Hogan hadn't had the belt long enough yet. You know, you, you, you don't want to start flipping and flopping that soon. That's one school of thought. Um, and I can see both, both sides of that, to be honest with you. Um, was but, there, was there any sort of hesitation on either guy? You know, th- listen, fans would say, oh, neither guy wanted to lose this. You, do you want to correct that narrative or, I mean, do you yeah, know? that wasn't true. I mean, I, I think Vader really, really wanted to work with Hulk. Of course. He really did. Does. Yeah. And, and I don't think it mattered to Vader whether he went over or not. It really didn't. I think with Vader, you know, Vader's politics were all about money and, and not so much, you know, his ego. Um, Vader, I think Vader, and I'm, I'm just guessing now we didn't have talks about this or anything like that, but my impression was that Vader was smart enough to know that if he went in there and he had a great match with Hulk, you know, his, his leverage, his opportunity to improve his position would have been on the flip side of that, not on the front side of it. So for Vader, it was just, I think an opportunity to get in there and prove that he could have a good match and prove that he could have chemistry with Hogan when everybody was kind of betting against that. I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to, and that's our lineup of shows. We got an incredible lineup of shows planned for you, but before we run through what's coming up and I'm excited to run through this with you and and share it with everybody else, I can't help, but talk about, we've, we've mentioned it a few times, how bad, and I mean, how bad the backstage promos were during this show. I think it might be the worst pay-per-view ever when it comes to backstage promos. And there's perhaps no worse offender 
than one of the greatest promos of all time, the immortal Hulk Hogan. I watched it this morning and, uh, I don't know how, but for some reason, Megan wound up being in the room with me when I watched it and I started laughing and she said, what's funny. And I rewound it and I said, pay attention. And I want you to count the number of times Hulk Hogan says the word brother. It is over the top comical. I'm going to play the audio right now. I can't believe this actually happened. Here we go. Are you ready, Eric? I'm ready. Gentlemen, what you have seen the past six or eight months here at World Championship Wrestling has all led us here to this great city of Baltimore and to this very moment because not more than two or three minutes from now, Hulk Hogan, you along with Jimmy Hart in your corner will be going to the ring here in front of this capacity crowd at Super Brawl 5 to defend the World Heavyweight title. You know the frame of mind that Vader is in. This man is a loose cannon. He is ballistic tonight. Well, you know something, Mean Gene. To say that the city of Baltimore, brother, One. was not electric would be an understatement, brother. Two. Vader time has been running rampant. He's been bullying his way around here for the last couple of days, brother. Three. We know the power of Vader. We know all about the demon he's warned us all about, brother. Four. But the thing is, brother, Five. this is the final test for Hulk Hogan, brother. Six. This is the test that separates the good men from the bad men, brother. Seven. The immortality of Hulkamania. And he will have to bury me, brother. Eight. Six feet under in Baltimore, brother. Nine. To steal the trust, the love, and the devotion in the future. All those Hulkamaniacs for me, mean Gene. The way he is psyched up. Jimmy Hart, you voiced your concern. And Hulk, even now at the at the, at the the very last moment here, I've got to voice my kids. I am concerned about you tonight, my friend. Well, you know, it goes all the way back to the home front, brother. Yeah. Even my family says Hulk Hogan. You can walk away, brother. You don't have to prove a thing. The man's going to hurt you, brother. Twelve. Well, I know all about Vader, brothers. I know all about what he's made of. And to say the pythons aren't ready would be an understatement. To say Hulk Hogan isn't psyched and ready would be an understatement. So Vader time. This is where the power lies, brother. We're going to test you tonight. We're going to drag you around. We're going to see what he's made of, Jimmy Hart. And by hook or by crook, we're going to corner the dude, brother. Whether I got to play possum, whether I got to face him straight up, brother. We're going to find out what he's made of. But Jimmy Hart, the dirtiest player in the game is sitting out there, brother. And he's an innocent bystander. And wouldn't it be a shame, Jimmy Hart? If he was to happen to get in my way right when I had Vader in the launch position, brother. Keep an eye on him, Jimmy Hart. Don't worry, Huckster. I've got an old Ric Flair. We know. We are ready to face the demon, baby. It's not Vader time. It's Huckster time, daddy. And the way I feel right now, Mean Gene, all the other world titles, brother, all the last years in professional wrestling have came down to this one moment, brother. This is the most important day in my life, brother. And the man that walks out of there alive, the man that walks out of there as the WCW champion, brother, will shape the future of the 90s, will lead the brigade. And from this day on, it was said, it will be marked in stone. It's not Vader time, brother. It's Hulk time. And what you're going to do when the largest arms in the world run wild on you, you're mine, Vader. 23 times brother well you know if it works stick with it (laughs) (laughs) no listen he's one of the best promos ever but it was just comical the brother count so we're gonna do a brother meter 
on all Hulk Hogan promos moving forward. This was an inordinate amount of brothers, brother. And, uh, it was funny because when, uh, I finished the promo and I was done, I said, was that 24? Megan says, sure was brother. I mean, it's our new word. (laughs) Brother is the new word from Hulk Hogan. 23 times in a single promo. I loved it. I'm sure you did too. Next week, we're coming at you with super brawl 2000. Uh, we'll also be coming your way on March the 2nd with a March 6, 2000 Nitro watch along. And I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. That's before Eric was back. That's exactly right. We're doing that one in particular because that is a, a Vince Russo Nitro that I think is one of the reasons Eric winds up coming back. So we'll have fun with that one. We'll also enjoy on March 9th, the March 8th, 1999 Nitro. It'll be a watch along on March 16th. We'll be back with uncensored 95. Uh, we're going to have a little fun with that one. We've talked about a lot of that topic before. We're going to have another slant on it this time. March 23rd, Uncensored 2000. March 30th, Sting's 1997. Uh, obviously the biggest career year he'd ever had. Uh, and he wrestled one match. So that's kind of fun. Uh, April 6th, we'll do the Nitro restart from April 10th, 2000. April 13th, something totally different we've never done before. TNA lockdown 2010, one of the biggest shows in TNA history. We've not spent a lot of time talking about TNA. That should be a barn burner episode, April 20th, spring stampede 2000. And we'll wind out the month of April with ask Eric anything on April 27th, any stick, anything stick out, anything you're looking forward to on that lineup. I think the TNA lockdown episode, surprisingly enough, is something that I'm interested in looking at. I mean, I'm looking forward to all of it, but, uh, because that's an area that we typically don't step into. That'll be, uh, that'll be fun. It will be fun. Set your calendars. That's coming your way. And next week, uh, we're talking about super brawl 2000 as a quick reminder, your main event of that show, is Sid vicious against Scott hall and Jeff Jarrett, a three-way dance for the world title underneath. We've got Hulk Hogan and Lex Luger. We've got Ric Flair and Terry Funk in a Texas death match. I don't even remember that one. We've got the mama Luke's taking on David flair and crowbar in a Sicilian stretcher match for the tag titles. We got Billy Kidman working with Vampiro big T the former Ahmed Johnson working with Booker. We've also got tank Abbott and big Al and a leather jacket on a pole match, the wall oh and the God. demon three count and Norman smiley and a handicap match, Brian noms and bam, bam in a hardcore match. And of course, of course the artist formerly known as Prince Ikea taking on lash LaRue for the vacant cruiserweight title. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. It's WCW 2000. This should be fun, huh? Uh, What a mess. I can't wait. I can't wait. Stay tuned next week, right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.